We're going to be in Matthew 5. So I was reading this morning um, in my, I'm, I'm doing the chronological Bible reading plan this year. And so I'm all in the New Old Testament. I'm a little, I'm a little like, okay, give me some New Testament. Well, the Lord kind of dealt with me about that this week, <laughs> since that's what the message is about, <laughs> the Old Testament. I love it. What does Jesus think about the Old Testament? That's what we're going to talk about today. All right. Um, and I think you're going to find that he probably holds it quite a bit higher than you and I do. And we need to take that to heart, which is good. So um, I think it's fitting that my little story that I'm going to share is actually out of the Old Testament um, as I was reading there this morning. So let me give you a little history background, and then I'll, I'll, I'll read the little passage that will that'll go with that. So um, about 3,000 years ago, so roughly 1,000 B.C., we have Israel and their first king. The people choose Saul, and he's like, you know, the LeBron James of the age, right? He's really tall and he's really handsome, even though nobody knew of him until he was picked. There he goes. So he becomes king. He doesn't do a good job. And God replaces him with his choice, which becomes the one we know of, King David. And King David is a great king. And so Saul's king for 40 years. David's king for 40 years. And then king David has a son. He has lots of sons. <laughs> That's another sermon. Uh, he has one son named Solomon who's king for 40 years. And they're all kings over the whole nation of Israel, 20, I'm sorry, 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Solomon doesn't finish so well. So his son, Rehoboam, takes the throne and immediately makes some pretty poor decisions. And as a result, the nation, which is already primed for division, splits into two nations. Okay, The northern kingdom called Israel, which is very confusing, right? Because wasn't it all Israel? So they're called Israel. And the southern kingdom, which is Judah, and I don't know if Benjamin's there by choice or not. They may just be there because their real estate's wrapped up in... But we have Judah, and the southern kingdom's called Judah. So now each kingdom has its own king. And this is the divided kingdom that you read about in most of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And there were lots of kings. Some were, some were good. All the Israel kings were bad. And then some of the Jude Judean kings were, were bad. So this is half. This is, um, there have been kings for a while. When I to get to this place in 2 Kings 18, I'm going to start reading in verse 9. Sorry, guys, I didn't get to tell them in the back, so it won't be on the screen necessarily. But here's a summary of what God is going to give as his explanation for why he's about to do what he's going to do. Now, here's what he's getting ready to do. He's getting ready to not only let the kingdom be divided as long as it's been, he's now getting ready to end the kingdom of Israel. And then later he'll end the southern kingdom of Judah. And they're both going to go into exile. Now, if you don't know what it's like to be in exile, it's because you're an American. <laughs> we don't know what it's like to lose a war. We might not always win them, but we don't lose. And there's nobody that has threatened us, ultimately, our mainland, someone taking over. And so as a result, we think we, we kind of have this mindset, we're invincible. We're not really worried about an invasion. If we're talking about war, it's always over there. And that's kind of the way Israel felt. But God took that invincibility feeling away when he allowed them to be conquered. And this is what he said when he gives the, the, the explanation and the reason. And so when these names come up, I'll, I'll explain. In, in King Hezekiah's fourth year, so King Hezekiah was the king of Judah at the time, and he was one of the greatest kings of Judah. He was in his fourth year's king. 
which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel. So northern kingdom, Hoshea. He'd been, it was his seventh year. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. That's one of the bad guys, at least in this story, right? That's uh, the nation of Assyria, the kingdom that was going to take, take care of Israel. Not good way either. Shalmaneser, king of Israel, marched against Samaria, that's the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, and laid siege to it. At the end of three years, so a three-year siege, was after the, uh, at the end of three years, the Assyrians took it. So Samaria was captured in Hezekiah's sixth year, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel. The king of Assyria, now this is not Syria, this is the Assyrian empire, which is no more. But this would have been from the region where Nineveh is. The king of Assyria deported Israel to Assyria and settled them in Hala of Gozan on the Harbor River, Habor River, and in the towns of Medes. Okay, so basically they were sent east uh, over towards the uh, area, area of Iraq and Iran. And then he gives the reason. This is, this is the reason that this all happened. Verse 12. And this is a very short summary. 17 gives you the full-blown. This happened because they had not obeyed the Lord, their God, speaking of Israel, but had violated his covenant, all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened to the commands nor carried them out. So they just disobeyed the word of the, word of the Lord, disobeyed the word of God, did not keep the covenant that God made through Adam, through Noah, through Abraham, through Moses, through David. I mean, just go down the list, right? He, he made these covenants with all these people to say, I will be faithful, I will be with you. And Israel was not. Okay? And so as a result, at some point, God said enough is enough, and he allowed them to be conquered and carried away into exile. The equivalent would be if a nation conquered America and took us away. And you were separated from your kids and you were separated from your parents and your friends, and you were taken to a place where nobody knew who you really were, and that was the rest of your life. That's what they went through. And it happened around 722 for the northern kingdom in Israel when Assyria conquered them, and then the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians who came in 586 and started taking away Judah. The same thing happened. And this was God's reason, because you did not obey my word. What was their word of God back then? What was their Bible back then? It was the first two-thirds of your current Bible called the Old Testament. The Old Covenant. Now, they didn't call it that, even though even to them it would have been old. We call it that because we have the New Covenant, the New Testament. Kind of like when I get a new iPhone, I go, that's my old iPhone. And you, if, I didn't, if I didn't trade it in, that's my old iPhone. This is my new one. And then I just, Carl, this is my iPhone. I don't, and I discard that. And that's the way some of us look at the Old Testament. It's like, yep, yep, Ben, that's, that's, we don't need that anymore. That's been taken care of in the New Testament. And there's some measure of truth to that in the covenant. The new covenant supersedes the old covenant. That's right. And at the heart of it, that matters. But think about your, your newer iPhone for a second. What's it like? It's very much like your old iPhone. It looks similar in shape. The technology hardware inside is very similar. The software is the same, just a little more up to date. Sometimes in some cases, exact same software. 
it's just an it's a it's a it's just an older or newer version of iPhone. There's a similar uh, analogy to this that we'll see at the end. We see this in the end of Revelation, where when we learn that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and we don't really think about that scripture very much. It seems we don't talk about it like like we do because I think we would be more excited about it. Uh, I think there's a little bit of us that's kind of like you know I don't know I kind of like this earth. I don't know that I want it to go away. But what's it going to be replaced with? Another earth. Okay? And we're going to call it the new earth for about two seconds. And then we're going to be like, what was that other one again? We're not going to, we're not going to think much about the past. What's amazing to me is that he's also recreating the heavens. Which is, God is so creative and he's so powerful and he's amazing. Why do I share this with you? I share this with you because... Scripture from God is Scripture from God. It's all God-breathed, and in its time, when it's delivered, it's all appropriate and relevant, inerrant, infallible truth. And because it's those things, it's authoritative, should be, in our lives. And for those who believe it is what it claims to be, it is authoritative to the extent to which we're faithful to it. And for others, it's the equivalent of, a, of an old iPhone that you might have in your drawer at home because you don't know what else to do with it. I'm not going to throw it away. It does make a pretty cool paperweight. But at the end of the day, it's useless if you don't use it. It's just taking up space. And some of us treat our Old Testament like an old iPhone. Okay? So that begs the question, so what's the big deal about the Old Testament? And so I'm not going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you what Jesus thinks. Because he gets the same question. In fact, what's going on here is that he's sharing the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' ministry is still pretty new. He's still pretty new, but he's gotten a lot of people's attention. Why? Because he's like outperforming Golden Corral at the buffet line. Right? He can put out the food and it doesn't cost. And he's outperforming MUSC and the healing department because everybody who comes to Jesus finds healing and there's no bill attached and insurance is irrelevant. Right? Wouldn't that be amazing? One day, again, the best is yet to come, remember? And so, in the midst of that, people are hearing him. He's teaching, right? His whole purpose in doing the miracles is to show and tell. He wants to show you the kingdom of God, and then he needs to tell you about it and why it matters. That's the point. He wants you to know. Okay? It's not about the miracles, though they are hugely important. And there were people who had heard enough of the message, but maybe didn't understand it or maybe didn't believe it. And so they were saying things like, he wants to abolish the law. He wants to get rid of the Mosaic law, the great Moses and his law. He wants to make it so that it doesn't exist. He wants to set it aside as old and obsolete. Well, that's going to ruffle a few feathers, especially if you've invested your whole life in studying it and memorizing it and interpreting it and teaching people to obey it. Hence, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. That's all they did. That was their job. I mean, the scribes, they were so revered in the culture. When they would go everywhere. They'd wear their fancy robes that were very distinctive. They screamed, scribe, scribe. And so they'd walk down the road. And when a scribe would walk down the street, if you were... On, on the side of the street, no matter what you were doing, you would stand in honor of that person. And you might say, Rabbi, or, or Father, or, or some other um, honorific name. And if you, he came to your home to have a meal, he would sit at the head of your table, not you, because he was a scribe. 
So the word of God was revered and, and, and considered very important in the eyes of some to an extent. But it wasn't always lived out, kind of like today. So Jesus is going to respond to that. And the reason he's going to respond to that is because he wants to make it very clear that God hasn't changed and his word hasn't changed. Okay? And at the end of the day, you're going to love this. The summary of the Old Testament law and the summary of the New Testament law is love God and love people. Isn't that great? Right? Even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? I'll take it. I'll take it. The law of Christ. Now, we don't like that word law because it implies authority. It implies we have to do stuff, which is part of the reason why we have a lot of the anger that's going on today, right? We don't like people telling us what to do with our bodies. Don't make me, don't mandate a vaccine, right? You see why people might be just a wee bit upset. We don't like authority, even though God has given us authority as an umbrella that brings favor and blessing when you submit to it. Now, obviously, if authority is contrary to God's authority, that, that's a problem, and we have to choose and decide. But when it is in concert with or in sync with, authority is a blessing to the extent that we enjoy and, and submit underneath it. All right, so let's read some of the scripture so you can see what Jesus said. All of these words are Jesus. Now, one of these words, okay, so none of the words I say is Jesus. All the words I'm going to read are Jesus, okay? So here we go. Jesus starts off in verse 17 of chapter 5. This is Matthew's account. So Matthew, one of the 12, says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Okay, the law and the prophets is a phrase that was basically describing the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. They called it the law. Sometimes that meant the first five books. Sometimes that meant all of it. But usually they said the law and the prophets to represent Genesis through Mal Malachi. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Abolish, demolish, destroy, dismay, set it aside. He didn't come to do any of those things. He said, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's what he came for. And that's what he's doing. It's what he's done, and it's what he's continuing to do. Okay, so a couple of examples um, if you think back to the very beginning, we have the first two chapters of Genesis. We have the creation account. God created. We have Adam and Eve. And then we have chapter 3. And there the serpent comes and tempts Eve, and she gives in to the sin. Adam gives in to the sin. They both are given to the temptation, I should say. They sin. Sin enters the world. And then God pronounces consequences for those sins immediately for, for the serpent, for the man, and for the woman. For the woman, his consequence includes the promise this is in Genesis 3.15. The promise that one of her offspring in the future is going to take care of this. Okay? And that even though the serpent is going to bruise his heel, maybe even crush his heel, because the word's the same, that the offspring of Eve will crush his head. That's why Jesus is sometimes called the snake crusher. And I don't know about you, but I don't mind crushing a, a snake or two if he's in my path. And he's poisonous. Okay? And sometimes it doesn't matter if he's poisonous. I'll ask after I kill him. So, so uh, he says, I've come to fulfill them. He, Jesus fulfills that. Jesus is the one who is the snake crusher. Now, where does Jesus do that? He did it at the cross. That's where he's defeated sin and death, shame and guilt, hell itself. He, he did it there. He came 
Okay, that was another. He fulfilled scripture, said that he was going to be born of a virgin, he was going to come, that God was going to come down personally and point us to himself, draw us to himself, and he did that through again through the son Jesus. What are some of the, the things that have yet to be fulfilled that are coming? He's coming again. He's coming again. Okay? You know, we, we celebrate Christmas like we really believe he came. What if we celebrated something for his, uh, his future coming? Wouldn't that be a holiday to think about? So he says, uh, then he says this statement, for uh, he says, for truly I tell you, truly I say to you, okay? Now this is a really important phrase that's going to be, we're going to hear about it in the next several weeks, and here's why. Well, I'm going to tell you what it means in a minute, but the reason is because in the following passages, Jesus is going to follow this summary statement about the law with specific interpretations of the law. He's going to basically say, let me show you how the Old Testament works in the New Testament world. He's going to say that knowing that that hasn't come yet. But when he rises from the dead, then it will, they'll start to get it. It'll start to click and make sense. And so he's going to help make sense or provide commentary on Old Testament law and why the Old Testament has principles and truths that are timeless, that transcend culture and time, and therefore are worthy of our obedience even today. Okay? So... He says, for, for truly I tell you, well, let me break that statement down and then I'll read the rest. Truly is just, it's like, behold, pay attention, don't miss this. If you don't write anything else down, write this, mark this in your Bibles. You can do that, it's okay, it's not against the rules. Okay, so, and then he says, I say to you or I tell you. Break that into two pieces. I tell, okay, who's speaking, right? Who's speaking? Jesus. If anybody has authority to speak into your life, it's the one who created you. You ever lay in bed at night and go, why did he create me? I mean, he could have created anybody. He created me. I'm like one of those he chose to create. Think of the infinite number of people he didn't choose to create. Why did he create me? The fact that he did should tell you how valuable you are. And it also should tell you that he understands to what purpose and end he created you and that that matters. Anybody who's powerful enough to create somebody from nothing has a good reason for doing it, and we ought to take note of that reason. So Jesus is basically speaking authority. I tell you. Who is you? Well, he's speaking to the people that are there. Who's he speaking to? Who's there? Remember, he's outside, and his 12 disciples are right in front of him, sitting as he sits to teach them. But they're not alone, right? The studio audience of hundreds, if not thousands of people, are standing behind, listening in. Fly on the wall, a little obvious, but there they are. And so Jesus is speaking to them, but he's also speaking to those who have ears to hear eyes to see, those who would trust and follow him, and he has these words are for them as well. And he makes it very clear how important and how lasting the word of God is from cover to cover. Not the book of maps. That's not part of that, okay? For I truly, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, which implies that they're going to disappear, right? Back to the new heaven and new earth. Not the smallest letter, 
not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Okay? Everything that Jesus came to do is going to be done, and then the law can do whatever it wants to do. If it's going to disappear, it's going to disappear. But that will be after, right, after heaven and earth disappear. It's going to outlast the universe. The Word of God is going to outlast the universe, which makes sense. The Word of God should outlast that which God has created with the Word. Makes sense. It should sober us. should help us humble ourselves. If not, God will use it to humble us. Therefore, and whenever we see the word therefore, we always ask ourselves the question, what's the therefore, therefore? Good question. Glad you asked. Therefore, in light of that, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Let's just stop there. Anyone who sets aside, same, almost the same word, it's the same root word as I did not come to abolish, destroy, set aside. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, and I usually am, there are rules and commands in Scripture that I consider more important than others. I mean, if I'm being honest, there's some I just think are more important than others, okay? And I treat them accordingly. So, for example, I think murder's pretty bad, and so I'm, that's really high on my list. Don't murder. That's really, really bad. Really wrong, really bad. God gets really upset when people murder people. But when it comes to obeying governing authorities, I, I'm willing to bend the rules, especially if there's a stop sign involved. I can be known to roll through one or two. I have a ticket to prove it. So you see, but which of those is from God? Both. Which one is a command? Both. Now listen to what Jesus said again. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands. Now, please don't go away from here going, okay, I've got to drive the exact speed limit because Darren said. You know, that is the point, but not the point. Okay? That is a point. And it's a valid point. All of the law matters in the big and the small. Because let's, let's just be honest. If you're not willing to obey the little stuff, you're probably not going to obey the big stuff when the pressure's on. I mean, how many of us have asked ourselves the question, if there's a gun at my head, will I deny Christ or not? Will I be faithful in that pressure-filled moment when my life's on the line? Well, how did you handle the other 100,000 little things in the last month? Were you faithful there? Because that's probably going to tell you whether you'd be faithful then. Right? At camp, the kids heard not the question, would you die for Christ, but would you live for him? It's the same thing. The answer to the question, would you die for Christ, is the same answer as, will you live for him? If you will consistently live for him, then yes, you will die for him. Because you already have in saying, yes, Lord, no to yourself. You see that? You see that connection? Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least, this is also talking about discipleship. This is talking about how do we lead other people. Not just when you're standing on this platform, but when you're sitting across the, the supper table and you're talking to your kids about the Word of God and they're asking you hard questions as kids are wont to do. And you're like, well, and you start to explain away something that they see as black and white because that's what their Sunday school teacher showed them in the Scriptures. And they're very, you're very uncomfortable, and so you start coming up with your rationalization for why, well, that doesn't always apply. You know, life is gray. 
He has some pretty strong words for that here, doesn't he? Least in the kingdom of God. At least you're in the kingdom of God. I'll give you that. I don't want to get in by the skin of my teeth. I want to get in with a little more than that. It is forever. He finishes the statement by saying, but whoever practices and teaches, we're coming back to that, these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know, and I'm not going to spend time here speculating the difference between being least in the kingdom and great in the kingdom, but I got to believe there's a huge difference. And I'm pretty sure you and I want to be great in the kingdom. Okay? At least not least. At least not. Right? Practice and teach. This goes and harkens to the verse at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The parable that Jesus uses to tie a bow on it. You've heard me say it. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to stick to hear it. Because it's so important. The wise man is the one who builds his house on the rock. And what's that foundation rock? It's the one who hears the word of God and then goes and does the word of God. Who will survive the storms of life when it rains come down, the wind blows, and the floodwaters rise. The house stands on that rock foundation. But the one who hears the word of God and doesn't put it into practice is like the fool, and Jesus' words, not mine, who built his house on sand, which looks good when the weather's fine. Feels pretty firm. I think we're good. Let's build a house on the sand. And then the rains come, and the winds blow, and the floodwaters rise, and the saturated soil liquefies. What does that do to your house? Yeah, it destroys it. Go back to the very first illustration with the kingdom of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel. Their, their houses were destroyed. Why? Because they did not obey the commands of the Lord. They were not faithful. It was not God and God alone. It was God and Baal and Ashtra and all the other gods that they thought had power to, even though they were false. And God sent prophet after prophet to tell them that they were false and call them to repentance. Oh, now you're starting to hear the remedy because that requires you want to humble yourself, then it probably ought to be followed by humility. And as we finish this up, he starts in verse 20. He ends in verse 20. For I tell you, here it is again, I say to you, I tell you, here's the, uh, another authoritative statement to those who would say, I follow the Lord Jesus. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, key word, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now it's not being leased in the kingdom. It's not even getting in. It's about righteousness. One commentator said, this is a thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't catch that. Let's go back and look. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they will be filled, satisfied. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is this word righteousness that we throw around? What does it mean? It means a couple of things. It means to have a right relationship with your creator your right relationship with other people, and it means to do right things, to live justly. The word literally, justification, which is the very beginning of salvation, it's the very first thing that happens. When you trust Christ, boom, you're justified. What does that mean? It means that in that moment of faith, when you've gone and you've been born again, born into the kingdom because you've turned away from sin and self, you've turned towards God by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, 
what happens in that moment, and it's instantaneous, is you are justified by God. And that means you are declared righteous in his, faith, in his eyes. It doesn't mean you're righteous. It means you've been declared righteous. What's the difference? Well, you must be righteous to enter the kingdom of God in the eyes of God. Otherwise, you can't, re- you can't enter his kingdom. So I'm not righteous because I've sinned, so how can I be declared righteous? Because Jesus stands between you and the Father and says, I got this. And when God says, why should I let you in? You say, not by my righteousness, but by his. He died for my sins, so therefore declare me right. Make me righteous in the Wesley Snipes line in The Fugitive or the sequel. Make me righteous, he says on the phone in the phone booth. Because he was in that case but he wasn't in the eyes of the law. Make me righteous. Jesus makes us righteous. He declare, And God declares you and I right with God, not because we earned it or deserve it, because there's no way we could earn it or deserve it, but because he says it is so, because he made a way through his son Jesus so that we could get there by grace through faith in Jesus. That's why Jesus matters. It's why he's the point. It's why we sing songs about him. It's why we sing about Gross things like blood and a, and a Roman cross is a sign of gross executions because he did it for us to be forgiven because we can't get that on our own. We don't deserve it. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These are the religious leaders that everybody looked up to in Israel. These are the people who followed the minutia of the law. If you took over some basil, say, hey, can I, can I get some basil? I, I need some basil. You go next door, you say, I need some basil. I'm all out. They give you a little handful of basil. The, I guarantee, the Pharisee's like, whoa, honey, hang on a second. And he pulls it over, and he takes his knife, and he cuts off 10% so that he can tithe the basil he just got from his neighbor. I kid you not. This was the way their mindset was. External obedience to the law is all that matters. Forget the heart of the law. Just do it. Do the, do the external thing. Now, what he did was right to the extent that he believed it mattered. But many of them fell short because it wasn't a matter of the heart. This is why they neglected the things that or the weightier matters of justice. This is why there was so much corruption and injustice in the, in the uh, religious system that was uh, the Judaism in that day. And it's what Jesus had very harsh words about. So how do our actions exceed or surpass the righteousness of theirs? It's that ours looks very different than theirs. And different commentators disagree over how to say this, and so I'm just going to say it the way I know how to say it. I don't know any other way to say it. To the extent that they did what was right outwardly, exceed that, make sure it's inwardly. To the extent that they totally missed it, do the opposite. Either way, your righteousness will exceed theirs, if you're doing the right thing for the right reason, which is because love. Not because I'm compelled and God's got my arm and he's twisting it and I've got to do it because he told me to and I'm grudgingly obeying the Lord. No, I love him because he loved me first. And so my desire to trust and obey him is rooted in love. The law of Christ in the Old Testament, the law of Christ in the New Testament is love. God is love, and he calls us to be no less than love incarnate in this world. That's why we're called the body of Christ. That's why it matters when we get along, when we're on the same page. Now, diversity, yes. Uniformity, no. But unity, yes. 
And our unity is in Christ, who is love, demonstrated on the cross. But God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see why we need to humble ourselves and repent? Because we're not doing this well. None of us are doing this well. There's some individuals, there always are a few that, that actually live this way. We'll call them the remnant of the church. And then there are a few churches that maybe collectively are doing this, call that the remnant of the church. But at the end of the day, we can do this by the grace of God if we choose to make it the priority it needs to be. And that includes the commands of the Old Testament as well as the commands in the New Testament. Now, the qualifier on the Old Testament is not every rule is equal anymore because they were for a time in the past and some of those laws are no longer applicable okay i just use this we're not doing the sacrificial system anymore okay you don't need to sacrifice any animals okay to be forgiven because there's been the one final sacrifice that has been offered in jesus okay we don't have to build an 18 inch parapet wall around the roof of our house for one they're not flat roofs and two it's not a building code requirement for us we have our own building code requirements here and so there are laws and rules like that that in context you can read and reasonably conclude that's not for us today. But the principles of justice and mercy and just doing what God has called us to do by living, like valuing life, like valuing the, the orphan and the widow and the immigrant, right? All of those things carry over. Because those are the big pieces of justice and mercy that God calls us to that are rooted in love. And that's our motive and that's our means. And we're not doing it really well. At best, we're kind of staying in the background going, well, if I just don't say anything bad, right? That's the way the world explained the golden rule. In Jesus' day, they would say, don't do to others what you would have them do unto you. And Jesus flipped it to a positive, which is much more responsible. He says, do for others what you wish they would do for you. Now, I want you to think about the people in your life who are going to be really angry about the news this past week. Family, friends, neighbors. I want you to think about them. And I want you to ask yourself the question, how can I love them this week? How can I step out of the shadows and love them? That's the question I want you to wrestle with. How can I love the people at First Emmanuel Baptist Church in Dorchester Road? How can I love the people of Afghanistan? How can I love my neighbor as myself? In your, your context, it might be something different. But let's get out of the shadows. Now, I'll give you this one warning. And actually, Jesus gives you this warning when you step out. Because he says it, and we said this a couple weeks ago. And I end with this. You are salt of the world. You are the salt of the world. You are salt of the earth, sorry. The world. You are the light of the world. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before them. You will draw attention to yourself when you do this and it will cost you. Okay? Salvation is free but not without cost. 
There is not a cost in getting salvation, but there certainly is a cost in following Jesus. Are you willing? This is back to the question, are you willing to die for Jesus? I just ask it just like they did at camp. Are you willing to live for Jesus who created you, who died for you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is so much easier to preach this than to live this. I confess I fail at this miserably every day. I don't say that as a concession, for I am not okay with that. I just say that to be honest as publicly as I can be. I do not deserve your mercy. I do not deserve your grace. But I am so grateful that you are a God of love who gives mercy and grace from that love that defines who you are. And Lord, it makes me that much more want to love my neighbor as myself, even though I don't always want to do that, and I certainly don't always feel like doing that. Lord, have mercy on me, forgive me, cleanse me from the times when I have sinned and have not taken advantage of the moments you've put in front of me to love my neighbor well, to exercise the golden rule as Jesus spoke it, to just care. Lord, forgive me. Forgive us. Forgive us as a church for being content with the status quo. No matter how well or how poorly you think we're doing, Lord, often we're just, we're just okay with the way things are. Lord, may we not be satisfied any longer with the way things are here. May we yearn to do more. To do not more, but to do right, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. We have, we have nothing to be proud of anyway that's worthy to be called something to be proud of. So thank you, Lord, for being patient with us and giving us the time to work through these things in our minds and in our hearts. And Lord, for those who are here that maybe don't know you, they don't have a relationship with you through your son Jesus, they need to know how to get to you, God, I pray that they would just trust Jesus, that they would turn away from their own agenda, their own way of doing life, and just turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm yours, I want to do this your way. Turn away from their sins and turn to you. You forgive them. For, you forgive all of us for all of our sins when we turn to you in, in faith and humility. It's why we sing. It's why we come. It's why we gather. It's why we love to trust and follow you because of what you've done for us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is a reminder of what you did for us on the cross through Jesus, making a way for us to be justified, declared right, so that we could enter your presence one day fully, we pray that as we take that crust of bread, we remember that Jesus was crushed for our iniquity. When we take that juice, that we remember that he bled out and died for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. May we remember these things as we celebrate through the Lord's Supper, and may we leave this place grateful, joyful, and available. In Christ's name we pray.